Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, David Craig, has faced a cancer diagnosis not once, but twice. I asked him what he would describe as the best and the worst experiences in healthcare. He said, I feel like anytime we give someone the gift of seeing them, not seeing them for their diagnosis or not seeing them just as a patient, seeing them for them as a unique human with their own unique goals, that, that can be a gift in someone's life in that moment. Here to share his story is David Craig. Dave, you're very welcome to this call. I'm thrilled that you took the time to share your story with us. And I want to start at the point where you were an athlete, an accomplished athlete, unsuspecting of what life was about to throw at you. Can you talk about the day before all of this happened? I would have been 25 years old and I would have been preparing for the New York State Natural Bodybuilding Competition. And like many things that consume us, I was wholly focused on being on stage and competing as a natural bodybuilder, completely unaware of what was developing in my body already. You were competing in the New York State Bodybuilding Competition, so you must have been at the peak of your physical and mental well-being. Would that be fair to say? I would say at the peak of my physical well-being, yes. I had very low single-digit body fat. I won the New York State light heavyweight title, so it was an exceptional athletic achievement for me. I was singularly focused on that task and also about to start my master's degree. And, you know, what health had in mind for me afterwards was nowhere in my thinking. But at that point in your life as a young man, you would have thought you'd have done everything to keep yourself in good physical condition. You had no risk factors for any major illness. That's correct. There was no history of cancer in my family. I was in the gym five, six, sometimes seven days a week. My diet was, you know, as clean as a diet can be. And I thought I was not only doing right things, but pushing myself to the extent of healthy behaviors. So what happened next? So I was on a high at that point in my life, you know, from receiving that title and accomplishing a, a huge goal I had set out for myself. I was finishing my undergrad degree in communication and about to start a master's degree in technology management. And not long at all after that competition, I just felt something was wrong in me. And, and I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. And so I went to the health services department on campus and they sent me for an ultrasound. And that's ultimately what started this journey. You had no idea what was going on. So in many ways, as a young man, would you have been looking for signs of anything that was out of the way? Oh, no. I mean, you know, we all hear things on TV or awareness campaigns about doing self-checks and you know, all the things, but I had my college physicals and I thought I was doing the things that I should have been doing. I met a gentleman I respect tremendously, Dr. Michael Stubblefield, 
and he's known for cancer rehabilitation. And he said to me, you know, in my survivorship many years later, that at that moment when I was in the peak physical and mental condition of my life, cancer was already starting its growth inside of me. And to know that paradox is still something I grapple with. So tell us about how the diagnosis was made and all that happened immediately after that. We talked in one of our conversations about how life being a teacher until we're ready to be the student. And in my first cancer diagnosis, I was so focused on not letting it interrupt my life, but I still tried to set a gym schedule to stick to, and I still went full speed into my master's classes. And I did all these things thinking that I could outwill cancer. And it wasn't until August the following summer, so seven months after my diagnosis, that I was in class and my belt buckle was digging into my stomach so much that it was cutting the skin. And I didn't realize I had gained 50 pounds. I was in that much denial that I hadn't even recognized an additional 50 pounds on my body. You were in denial because you were not keeping up physically or that the disease was actually causing you to morph in in that way? It was more the psychological effect of what I was going through. It was me using eating and being under stress and being in denial, trying to fool myself that I wasn't going through what I was going through. And what was that like? What was the actual experience like? Looking back now at the diagnosis and the treatment and those months after that? Now with many years, actually, this past month was my 20th cancerversary. So it's been 20 years now, which is hard to impossible to believe. It makes me realize how ill-equipped I was to try to understand what I was going through. And I never did at that time. And I had a second primary diagnosis five years later. And I tried to use the same technique, you know, the denial and the distraction. And by this point, it was just so much of a factor in my life and causing so much interruptions to my physical and mental health that it finally forced me to have a breakdown before I was ready to start coping. Knowing what you know now, and first of all, congratulations on the 20th anniversary, as you say, we're really pleased that things have turned out well. But now, knowing what you now know, with the benefit of hindsight, what should you have been doing in that early phase following the diagnosis? Allowing myself to ask for help, to receive help, to be open to learning. I admire now and I'm so grateful for the people who really care and are compassionate about what we go through as humans. I think it is a huge part of what drives you and why we connected so much. And I cut myself off from that because I was trying to be stronger than something that I couldn't. And if I could go back to myself at that time, I would try to give myself compassion and courage to accept instead of fight against. So you were living a life as if nothing had changed that you could carry on being this driven athlete driven student 
setting your mind on things that you were trying to achieve. In many ways, you read theories that say, well, that's what you should do. You should really just ignore it all and plow through all that's happening as if you are asking the universe to give you something different, to give you, to carry, you know, you are focused on what you wanted to achieve. It sounds as if you have some reservations about that. What do you think should have been different? You immediately, with that question, take me back to a moment in my parents' kitchen. And I was sitting at the kitchen table with my dad, and my mom was standing at the island behind us. I was trying to talk to them about, without having the language or the words, how could it be be breaking so much? I've done all these things. I've pushed myself as hard as I can push myself. How can it be breaking so much around me? And my dad, who has been my role model my whole life, he said to me, your mind, your body, and your soul, your mind and your body, you can control but your soul you have to allow. And I wasn't allowing myself to be human. I was trying to control all of it, and we can't. In reality, how do you operationalize that? How do you allow your soul to be and to accept and to find the strength within yourself to get through rather than saying, I will force this to happen? What I've realized mostly in these last couple of years as I've learned how to be more open and vulnerable, is that we all as humans are trying to be fully seen and be heard and feel valued. And we all live that in different ways and we all experience it in similar and dissimilar ways. But at our core, we're, we're trying to feel like we matter and to believe that we are here for a purpose. And When I tried to control everything around me, in fact, what I was doing was cutting myself off from how much everyone around me was trying for those same things. And in my life now, you know, these many years later, and some of the relationships that I am most grateful and most changed by have come from connecting with people that have very different journeys from me. But at my core, we are just trying to be human and connect and support and love. You clearly tapped into something which saw you through these last 20 years and have made you the person that you are. You would say wiser, stronger, more centered, more resourceful. What do you think that was? How do you think you found your way to that place that allowed grace, if you like, to enter your life? As with all big change, it was many events. But I can tell you that the first time I saw someone pull the curtain away from sort of the image, you know, the veneer we try to hold up to the world, I was at a young adult cancer conference and woman, Melinda, um, who uh, is a, a reproductive cancer survivor like myself, she was running around with a plushie of uh, the women's reproductive system and holding it in front of her. And she was saying and joking, this one won't kill me. This one won't kill me. And it was this shock moment in my life because I was trying so hard to hide the shame and the pain 
of what my reproductive system was going through and the loss of the ability to be a biological father and the, the loss of, in many ways, the things we think define manhood and masculinity. Those things were now my enemy instead of my friend. And to see this woman pull the curtain back and just expose these things that had controlled me inside was the first time that I could start to let all that out. And so many people have arrived in my life and shown me how to do that in different areas. Oftentimes, I didn't even know that area was there until they they showed me we could be human about it. We define ourselves on maybe gender, maybe our jobs, maybe something else. You as a bodybuilder would have been very much defined by your masculinity because that's what, to you, that's what beauty was. It was this ability to sculpt yourself in a way that absolutely defined you as a man. So many of us go around carrying this image of ourselves inside of ourselves, and yet you're saying that that was your enemy, that was which was driving you in the opposite direction to which you could be the beautiful soul that you are. So how do you think you can beat this? How do you think you can face this, that you have an illusion in front of you which is not serving you in any real way? I've never used that word enemy before about how I felt towards myself. That is profound because I don't know that I fully realized what I was trying to be the master of had become my enemy because it was no longer in my control. And in reality, it's all an illusion, the control piece. Sometimes we feel like we have it in control, and many times it, it isn't in control. But digging in and peeling back at myself, and I love that you spoke about identity. I've learned how much of me is missed by the labels that I was trying to apply to myself. And the more I've learned how to connect with people beyond the labels that we all apply on ourselves, the more I see how much exists between those things that we think identify us. You know, I thought I was an athlete and I thought I was sculpting my body to have this physique that identified my manhood. And I, I thought all these things, but in reality now, I connect with people that see themselves in such different labels, but, but our experience of the world is so profoundly similar. And one example I'll share with you is after my second cancer diagnosis, I spend the rest of my life on hormone therapy. My body doesn't produce hormones anymore. And for the first almost eight years, I didn't have anybody medically really paying attention or teaching me how to do that. And so my body was converting the testosterone into estrogen. And so I spent nine years, eight years with the testosterone level of a 70 or 80 year old man, but the estrogen level three or four times what it should have been by normal ranges. And that experience profoundly shaped me. And I've connected with people in the transgender community, and I see what I was going through and am able to have conversations with things that they go through, but on a very different path. 
And it's helped me understand this humanity that we're all striving, striving for, something that I felt incredibly, incredibly alone about. I'm able to see in others' experiences where I would never, I guess, allow myself if I lived within labels. It sounds as if cancer took one thing away from you, but strangely enough, there was a gift in, in the background which you are now describing. How do you feel about having received that gift and how do you talk to people with cancer now who say, this awful thing has happened and I can't see how this is in any way going to benefit me? I have to, in responding to that question, honor my wife, who is a stage four cancer patient now. And it is our cancer journeys that brought us together originally, although she wasn't facing stage four when we fell in love. And Ellis and I have helped each other learn how to love life and be grateful for it. And I use that word love because it's tough to think about loving trauma or tragedy, seeing her in the pain she's in and the fear that we both have. There is nothing that you might think is, is love, but together we have found a life that we are so grateful for beyond anything I knew before cancer. This journey has given me the capacity for life and love that I did not possess before. And she said to me this week, if I had to choose between what I'm going through now, but not having you or going through this and having you, I would choose this. And that, that is an intensity of life that is new and wonderful. Many people will not have such a challenge in their lives. For those people, you still hope that they would benefit in the way that you've benefited, that they would despite the fact that this apostrophe is not come in their life, that they are able to see what you're able to see, how do you relay the message to people who are never going to have this experience? The question provoked in me how we each arrive at our interpretation of meaning as humans. And for many people like me, it took trauma and multiple diagnoses to break the model that I started with. And if I hadn't gone through what I have, I'm entirely confident I would still be using that same operating system and life would be far less deep and meaningful for me. In fact, I'm positive if I'm it was lucky enough, I would wake up at 60 or 70 and realize how much I missed. And for all of us, whatever stage or age we find ourselves, we can look at what we're going through as lessons, like we talked about, or as the enemy. And if I can share anything that these 20 years have helped me understand, it's that what I thought was the enemy in the beginning has turned out to be the enemy of a lesser me, the enemy of not understanding what my purpose was in life. And I hope that all of us, as we face some of the most challenging things in our lives, can find some grace to just breathe and try to be with the things that 
take away what we thought life was supposed to be. I want to go back to more mundane things now and let's talk about your experience in healthcare. Healthcare doesn't always respond in a way that walks alongside you in a journey like this. It often behaves in a very mechanical way about the experience. Tell us about your best and your worst experience of healthcare over the past 20 years. I'll switch the perspective for a moment. Because I get to work in healthcare, I see things that as a patient, I I didn't have exposure to. And now in the work that I do, I get to see people that I wished I knew were doing what they were doing when I was going through it. Because initially I was filled with anger and uncertainty and fear and disappointed at the places the system had failed me. And now I get to be around people that with everything they have, their mind and their heart, are working to make healthcare more human for the experiences of us. And I I wouldn't be able to have this conversation without acknowledging how much the historically marginalized and people that did not have access to the same health care as I do, how profoundly different those experiences are. But by working with the individuals now who are working to correct disparities, I have hope for the future that as the patient 20 years ago, I didn't have because I get to see people changing the world and creating miracles. And that is a wonderful thing to be a part of. Are there lessons that we can learn from your experience and the experience of people who you've had interactions with, small things that we can do today without waiting for major change in policy or anything else? The way you frame that question immediately makes me think of one of those strongest single experiences in my journey. Maybe four or five years ago, I went to a dermatologist because I had some suspicious moles on my back. And with the radiation treatment that I had, my medical team at the time told me that there was a probability, a certain probability of recurrence from that treatment. And so that's always somewhere in the back of my mind. And when I had these moles on my back that looked concerning, I went to a dermatologist and first time in the office and I was in the the room waiting for the doctor to come in and she came in and started asking me a few questions. And then she started asking me a few more questions. And then she started asking about what I do for work. And maybe it was four or five minutes, I don't know, maybe seven minutes. I said, I've never had a physician ask me these types of questions. And she looked at me, looked at me, and she said, I care about you, not your skin. And this woman who's a dermatologist, you know, her profession is curing and and these things that are related to our skin. And she made me feel seen and made me feel important in a way that just washed away so many of the dehumanizing ways I felt in other experiences. Your question was, what can we do as individuals? I feel like anytime we give someone the gift of seeing them, not seeing them for their diagnosis or not seeing them just as a patient seeing them for them as a unique human with their own unique goals, that that can be a gift in someone's life in that moment. 
I also want to underscore the time that you mentioned there, five to seven minutes. For many of us in healthcare, time is really precious. But you're not talking about having spent an hour talking to you over a cup of coffee and all of that. You're talking about five to seven minutes in which some questions were asked and reflected back to you so that you could see that someone was present and listening actively to what you were saying. Is that fair? And and here I am five years later sharing how much that moment affected me, that five-minute moment affected me. The other side is the technical side. So as someone who is being actively treated for cancer, you would have had a very technical experience. There would have been doses mentioned and protocols mentioned and side effects and form filling and consenting and all that goes with that. That's possibly the other side of the coin. Tell us about what that feels like sometimes when you're in the space that you're talking about. I have to acknowledge by training, I am a patient experience researcher. So this is what I study professionally. And I'm always trying to pick up on those cues of experience. And the, the, the moment that we were just talking about as a trained researcher was so far outside of what I expected to be experiencing. It, it was just so unique and so powerful. It wasn't something I had experienced before. And so how do I connect that to the opposite experience? There have been so many scans and tests and labs and oh my gosh, over 20 years, I printed out my lab results just from the last three years for something and you know, it's pages and to, to try to almost juxtapose those two things, those pages of all the labs and all the tests and all, all the things that I go through, they are sort of the mundane and often dehumanizing experience of being a patient. And it's what we get used to and what I get used to. And then that is punctuated in the most beautiful way when someone makes you feel human or when you make someone feel human. Those things almost feel on opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet it needn't be like that because even when you are standing there in that gown with no back <laughs> in that cold room and someone is asking you to get on the couch and uh, assume this particular position and all that you, you, you're smiling, so I, I think you've been there. There is a moment that that can be humanized, where you can be made to feel that despite the dehumanizing impact of being treated like a piece of meat in a laboratory, that you're still David Craig, you're still that person with those hopes and dreams and those fears that need to be addressed. And just reflecting on this conversation, you know, I used this, I, my hands are up, and I, I used this really feeling seen in the way that the physician made me in the dermatology appointment. And so far away was the normal process of healthcare and being a patient. And if I reflect on those things, then your comment, 
they don't by design need to be opposites. And I don't know if I've fallen into that routine because it's a way to protect myself. You know, showing up and being present also means that we can feel pain. And it's, I'm sure that way for providers too, you know, to care for patients all the time and see the miracles and the tragedies, providers must have to protect themselves too. And we kind of push these things to opposite ends when in fact the real distance between them doesn't, isn't much. I suspect that the providers find themselves in that position because they fear what you fear. They fear the worst. They fear the loss. They fear that they will not be able to be the knight in shining armor that leads to the best possible outcome. You're saying that that doesn't really need to bother them nearly as much as it seems to because there's something else going on underneath all of this experience which somehow has also got, brings great gifts with it. Um, saying what you're telling me is that even your partner says that she'd rather have the experience and have you than not. So there's something that you only discover later on in the journey. One of my friends and mentors who I work with now, Brad, gave me a profound new perspective this week. He asked me how the appointment went with my wife and her oncologist. And I said to him, he was different in this meeting than in previous ones. And I said, he was more like a physician. And I don't know why I said that, but he was just more business. He was just more clinical. And that was my perception as a patient. And Brad, who is a health communications researcher, said he wanted to make sure he was giving you everything he had in his brain. He was trying to focus with everything he had to make sure that he gave you and your wife what you needed in that moment. And what I may have experienced as perhaps clinical, this doctor was using every skill and every piece of knowledge he could draw from to try to find the best outcome for my wife. And wasn't that just such a wonderful perspective-taking moment, allowing me to see something from another's eyes? And I can't tell you how much that makes me think differently about the situation and feel love and honor for somebody who would consciously make that kind of change to be different in a situation that is far more serious than has been in previous meetings. And he showed up for us, and I felt it. I feel it. I also feel that we should be giving not only what's in our brain, but also what's in our heart, and that somehow should be reflected in that conversation. It doesn't take much, as you say, five to seven minutes just to be seen. So whilst you are being very kind, I think we'd also wish that for you, that you get something of the person's heart, because that, in fact, is what healing is about. And healing doesn't mean making you free of the disease. Healing means also making you whole and making you, giving you back that which your body appears to want to take away. The way you just used the word healing, May I ask you what that means to you? Because I feel that. What does that mean, healing, in the way you, you just said that now? 
healing is allowing your, to use your phrase, allowing your soul to shine through. No matter what's happening in the very ephemeral world of your body and the the bit that we don't always manage to rescue. But what we can do is allow that within you, which is immortal, to come through in a way that brings you and everyone around you peace. I don't know what I can possibly follow with what is as powerful as what you just shared. I think what I'm what I'm growing or learning is that you know so often we focus on the ultimate outcome life or death and we put it in these binomial terms and there is a universe in between those things you know that is where living lives <laughs> and what you just spoke to was how we can make those moments about healing not attached to what happens as an outcome way out here or way out here, but how we heal and feel life, feel alive in these moments in between. It's simple, but it's not easy because for many it takes months, years to come to the realization that there's something happening that is profound and it has to unfold in its own way. But that's not the world of clinicians and clinics and scans and blood work and administration and what have you. And yet that's the world that we turn to even in our darkest hour. And for me, the wisdom that you've shared with us today, David Craig, and in the experience that you are going through and your dear wife is going through is profound and the lessons here are huge thank you so much for taking the time it's my honor thank you the health design podcast sponsored by the patient and physician advocacy alliance visit us at the journal of health design.com